Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good car journey, good dishwashing, good bedtime. Whatever it is, whatever time it is, however you're consuming this, welcome. My name's Matty. I'm from a band called The 1975, and I'm here with The Face magazine doing a series of podcasts where I get to interview my heroes. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to everybody who's been listening to this installments of conversations that I've been having. Today, I'm joined by a man who needs no introduction. It's Ina. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. You know what I'm like about you and having the opportunity to talk to you a little bit at length is amazing for me. So yeah, there's so much stuff that that I'd like to cover really. To jump in, could you explain for people listening the concept that you talk about of, um, of seniors? Sure, yes. So normally when people talk about artists, they refer to them as a genius. A scientist is a genius. And this is very much the idea that one person comes up with a great idea all on their own that nobody else expected. But actually, if you look at history and creative situations, both in the arts and sciences, what you discover is that there are lots and lots and lots of people chipping away at something altogether. And one of them finally kind of gets it or pieces it together or makes a public statement about it. But generally, my way of saying this is that great ideas are usually articulated by one person, um, but they're generated by a whole community of people. And that community includes a lot of people who aren't obviously uh, contenders. You know, for instance, I, I got particularly interested in early 20th century Russian painting when I was at art college and was very surprised to find out that some of the most important figures in that scene were salonists and gallerists and curators and collectors, mm. as well as all the other artists. You know, it wasn't only artists who were talking to each other. There are writers and all sorts of people. Uh, and some of them were just people who put on good parties where people tended to meet up and talk, you know. Yeah. So I thought there must be a word for the creativity of a whole situation or a whole scene. So then I changed the word genius to the word seniors. So that's where that came from. And, and I think it's very important in music in particular because um, we, we're so often inclined to think that Sorry, the lead singer is the important person. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but but with every group that I've ever known that was any good, it was the chemistry of the whole situation that really... Well, this is your... I, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, this is touching on another one of your ideas that you talk about quite eloquently about chemistry almost in a kind of alchemy sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, I found it interesting because the way that my band is set up is very much kind of a, a back and forth between me and George. And like you say, in, in those kind of collaborative relationships, there's, there's normally one who makes a lot of noise and then normally one who, I don't know, makes sense of that. So yeah, it's interesting to you say that because that relationship is very much part of my output, you know? Yes, and and it really isn't to do with the quantity that anyone is giving. I, I always use the analogy with the difference between iron and steel. Steel is iron with 4% or 2% carbon added. So 
the carbon is a tiny amount quantitatively in the whole thing, but it makes a huge difference. Steel is a huge, is a completely different material from iron, um, and you know it's that little tiny bit of carbon that makes the difference. So quite often in bands, you find that there's one person who doesn't say much, but when that person does say something, it tends to push things off into a different direction. Um, sometimes that something is only no. <laughs> the person who says no is sometimes a very useful person. So you get one person who's, who does a lot of saying yes. I'm a yeser myself. Yeah, that's great. Let's do that. Let's, yes, 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 yes. And then from the back of the room, every few hours comes no. <laughs> yeah, I think exactly. I think that every great writer needs a good editor. Do you know what I mean? And to have those people kind of like, and, and to have to create an environment where you can have those people as close as maybe we would have, you know, in when you're trying to create is, is really important. Yes. I mean, it's so nice talking to you. I remember last time we were together when we were drinking that weird tea and I was asking you about uh, cowboys and farmers and all those kind of things. But the thing that always always kind of strikes me with you is that you kind of never play up to this wizard role that's kind of imposed on you. There's this kind of active investigation that goes along with, with your creative that I can see that kind of isn't really interested in a lot of the things that's put on you, this kind of like mystique or these robes, as I would call it. Do you know what I mean? And I remember you saying that there's this there's this idea that once you understand something artistic or once you strive to understand the, the formal structure of something artistic, the mystery almost disappears. And the thing with me, it's like, if you look at a wider context like religion, I've always liked the idea of being fascinated by looking at my garden without having to believe that there's fairies at the bottom of it. Do you know what I mean? So I think that, and, and I think that that investigation that you have with music, like that, that, that you're not a, you're not really interested in the, in the kind of, the mystique or the cultural aspect of it. You're kind of like a, a scientist really in your investigation of sound and, and, and stuff. Is that a fair assumption? Uh, Yes, I think what I would say is that I like trying to take the mystery out of things because it always fails. <laughs> you always discover new ones. So, so I'm, I'm always interested. I have been interested for years in one major question from which a lot of other ones um, derive. And the major question is, why do people want to have art in their lives? Why do we want to make art? Why do we want to watch it, listen to it, or see it, whatever it is? Um, why should we? You know, why would people have aesthetic preferences? Why would you like pink better than green? Or why would you like, uh, you know, the Beatles better than Beethoven or whatever? So the question that has really interested me for a very, very long time now, since I'm getting so old, is, is the question of, what does art do for us? Humans don't do things randomly and they don't keep doing things if they aren't getting a reward from them. So what the question is, what is the reward we're getting? So I keep pulling, I keep trying to pull bits of art apart <laughs> to see what's left. Well, let's, I'm saying let's just stay in that place because I know that you've got more to say about that when you talk about the purpose of art or the desire for creation because, you know, me and George speak about that a lot and you can look at kind of just 
the meditative qualities of doing, whether it's sport or meditating itself or creating, it feels like when you're in those states, they put you into this kind of primordial state of consciousness where you're just kind of being or you're just existing. I've heard you describe it as losing yourself, art, religion, sex. These are all forms of kind of relinquishing responsibility of almost being and kind of giving it up to the moment. And that, that again, opens up the question for me with, um, I know that you've, obviously, because you pretty much invented it um, when we talk about ambient music, but these are the things that I start getting interested in because one of the reasons that I've spent so much now of my career in ambient music and the creation of it or the chasing of it is because I feel that it's the only kind of art form really that commands me how to feel, you know, like literature, words, visuals, they're all kind of inherently suggestive. Whereas it feels like the, there's, there's kind of this removal of interface when it comes to, you know, not to pander to you, but one's first experience of listening to Apollo or something like that. There's this kind of innate quality of human understanding that goes with the experience for me of ambient music. And, and, um, it is part of that losing oneself. Do you know what I mean? And, and the consumption of, of, of ambient music is the only thing that I kind of get into the same place as when I do as creating music, you know? Yes. Yes, well, the interesting thing about music as an art form is that it has always been non-figurative. You know, with painting, there was this big moment in the early 20th century when abstract painting suddenly appeared. You know, Kandinsky and all those Russians <laughs> suddenly started doing pictures mm. that didn't have a subject. Um, until that point, painting had always had a subject, had been about something. Religion, normally. Yes, that's right. Exactly. That was the preoccupation. And then in the 19th century, sex was <laughs> came into it a little bit. Yes. <laughs> but generally, you're right. It was religion, nature, sex, sort of those things. But it was actually about something. But music never really had a subject. Music is, is and always has been an abstract form of art. And so... I, th I think that's always that's very interesting because people are baffled still by abstract painting and say, what it's, what's it meant to mean? What's it supposed to be about? And so on. A question they never ask of music. Everybody accepts this completely abstract art form <laughs> um, very readily and very with great enjoyment, it seems to me. So given that music already starts out as abstract, one of the questions I was interested in was, how, how abstract can you actually make it? And I remember when my first, um, the first album I released that was called an ambient record, which was Music for Airports, when that came out, there was a review an, in an American magazine where the guy said, in very critical terms, he gave it a very poor one star or something. He said, this music has no beat, no words, no melodies, and no chord changes. And I thought, ah, that was a success then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought it was good that he sort of, he put his finger on exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> he thought it was a mistake though. Well, I think that one of the things that's so interesting about you is that you managed to make accessible bodies of work, especially your latest stuff that, that still was kind of like in, in the world of art music. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting because 
it always kind of has this idea of that like form is boring like I've that funny story I don't know if you you remember telling it but you told it about um is it someone from Kraftwerk came up to you and told you that they were in the pursuit of the perfect sine wave? Oh, yes. It was from a ta- guy from Tangerine Dream. Yes. <laughs> guy from Tangerine Dream. And um, your and your response to that, like most people is, is that well, the perfect sine wave is inherently boring. It's kind of like it's it's it has zero imperfection, therefore zero character or personality. Um, I think that the removal of form such as, you know, you know, lyrics or even turnaround. I was still talking to Steve Reich the other day about turnaround and stuff like that. Like the, um, the kind of removal of those formal ideas was such a revolutionary thing in music. And, and what I also was talking to Steve about, which I want to talk to you about, is how your influence has been so wide reaching, especially into electronic music. And I kind of wanted to talk to you just about what your relationship is with technology. Cause I've been talking a lot because my album's about to come out and kind of talking about, I, I'm super into technology and, and the internet and te- tech. It's very much like an interest of mine. And one of the things that this situation that we're in that I don't want to talk about a lot because um, it's not that, that relevant to art, but the situation that we're both in now, both in this kind of pandemic situation, what's really interesting is that People don't really like technology that isn't seamless into their life. It's a bit like, yeah, 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 that's cool, but let me know when it works. Do you know what I mean? Or when I can just run it on my iPhone and I don't have to bother. So what's the, what this situation has done has kind of pushed people towards either more rudimentary forms of uh, technology that are kind of in development or stuff that people wouldn't have thought to use like Zoom or those things that we were trying to do when we were trying to FaceTime before. But what's quite nice about it is that in the early days of the internet from what I saw was that the utopian kind of ideal of the internet was about the extension of pre-existing relationships. So you can, you know, talk to your granddad who lives in China, or you can send Bob from work an email when he's in Frankfurt. It was all about this kind of extension of our pre-existing relationships. It wasn't really about the wider idea of social media and debating with strangers and stuff like that. So what's what's quite nice is that I can see now, I think that because everybody's been driven to using these apps that business are going to get behind it and there's going to be a bit more investment in these kind of technologies, there seems to be this like search for tactility in in the internet world in the way that I used to love liner notes when I bought an album and now you don't get them. So you get stuff like an expanded digital artwork on iTunes that no one wants to look at. Do you know what I mean? There's always this search for replacing our kind of tactile relationship with it. You see Polaroid cameras and vinyl having resurgence because people want touch. Like, do you, are you interested in like any kind of forms of technology at the moment? Because I think like, for example, VR is going to change the world. And I think that I could talk about that for ages. Do you have any kind of any exciting prophecies for the world of tech? Well, something I've been very keen on, um, you may know about it a bit, is, is this generative music area that I've been working yes. on now for qu- quite a long time, actually. And, and funnily enough, which sort of started in my mind when I first heard Steve Reich's tape pieces. It's funny you should mention right, Steve okay. Reich because those those early tape pieces like come out and it's going to rain. When I heard those, my mind was really blown. I, I thought, oh my God, you can make an amazing symphonic piece of music out of 
1.8 seconds of tape because that's that's the loop yeah. length of one of of, of uh, it's going to rain. It's a tiny tiny loop um, going round and. If your listeners haven't heard it, it's hard to explain. I won't try, but it's really worth listening to. Please, could I just recommend mm. people give that a try? Um, Please, yes. But it sort of gave me the idea that of creating machines in a way, conceptual machines, not not physical machines with nuts and bolts and wheels turning, but systems that produced music. So instead of sitting down and thinking, I'm going to write a song, perfectly decent job to do, what about sitting down and saying, I'm going to design a system that will produce kinds of music that I couldn't even imagine. Um, So this is what I started working on many, many years ago. And Music for Airports is an example of that. And all of those other ambient records are really. Um, And I think the interesting thing about them is that they're they're a very interesting marriage between technology what's technologically possible at any moment and between you as both the composer and the listener so you're the composer in that you build the system that creates the music but then you listen to it and you think oh that bit's good what is making that work like that oh i don't like this part what do i have to change in the rules of the system to to make this part work better. Um, so it's sort of, I tried to explain it p- to people by saying the conventional view of how, how you compose music is, is a sort of architectural view that it's, you have this thing in your head that you want to make real. You've got this piece of music already in your head and you just got to think of a way of bringing it out into the world somehow, making it audible. Um, so this is kind of like an architect would imagine a building and then draw it up and it gets built. But generative music isn't like that really. Generative music is like creating a seed of some kind and then planting it in the garden and watching it grow, seeing what comes out of it and uh, then tweaking the rules a little bit so the seed produces different types of flowers. Um, so it's, it puts you as a composer into a different relationship to the work I think Um, it puts you in the same place that the audience is in a lot of the time now the thing about this is that it's I I started doing it many many years ago before computers even existed in a laptop form Um, but computers made it so much easier to do you can now do it with the computer in a person's phone I've released with my friend Peter Chilvers, several apps like this where we're, we're using the phone as a little computer which generates permanently changing, always different music. Um, so this is to me a very interesting idea, the idea of making music that has no end, um, infinite pieces of music that just keep going and don't repeat. Um, and then, of course, the applications of generative music are just starting to become clearer now games well games i can imagine is 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 a big one because i mean it's so fascinating that idea of kind of being of essentially in order when it gets to the compositional element of making music when you're talking about your generative music you you almost go back to the um you almost go back to the structure of what creates it it's almost like um 
oramics, you know, like the early kind of Daphne Aram kind of, do you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing of like altering the um, architecture of the instrument in order to get a different output. Do you know what I mean? It's really, so that is that, is that what that humancipator thing is that you showed me? Yes. Yes, that's right. That's, that's an example of that. It's a, it's a way of um, sort of saying, creating, well, I'm trying to think of a way of saying this that will make sense to people who don't know about MIDI, but um, it's a way of creating a sort of envelope of possibilities and saying these are all the things that could happen. And you, you make sets of rules about the things that can happen and the things that won't happen. And you say, okay, now go, explore that space. And the music is, a, is an exploration of, of those, the combinations of all those possibilities. So you've, you've composed it in the sense that you've said certain things can never happen. Some things will happen quite a lot, and some things will happen rather rarely. It's like a, it's like Minecraft or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very much like that. It's it's very similar to a lot of the things that are going on in games. I think, which is why I think, although I don't play any of them, I think games is is in a way the most interesting art form at the moment. I I completely agree. I do play. I, there's a limited set of games that I play, but they're normally ones that kind of really spike my creative desire do you know what i mean i have this idea that i don't really like stuff unless it makes me a little bit jealous <laughs> that's what i think <laughs> so i tend to kind of want to know what's going on and why i'm feeling this way and why that's making me think it's really cool and all those kind of things but um i've heard you say and it makes me laugh that um you said you've essentially feel sometimes that you've only ever had one idea and um two actually <laughs> <laughs> well talk to me about those two ideas well, yeah. Uh, well, the first one is this notion of asynchronicity, if you like, of of seeing what happens if you free things from being connected to each other. So, if you think of most music, it's like it's got a beat, it's got bars, it's got moments where everything does the same thing at the same time. So, all the elements of the piece of music are kind of bolted together. They're working in in consort with each other. That's that's generally the definition of music. Ambient music, or the kind I make anyway, um, doesn't do that. It says, here's a whole lot of elements, like things in a landscape, if you like, and they, they have separate lives. That bird flying up there has nothing to do with this fox down here, and neither of them know anything about what's going on in the river. Um, so... So they might all respond to big conditions like nighttime or winter, but they don't respond to each other. They, they're independent. So, so this idea of creating a kind of music in the way you might create a landscape or an ecology, an ecosystem, um, is interesting to me. That, that the fact of things not being synchronized is, is a way that you could make music as well. So that's the first idea. And the second idea was is this notion of generative, which I think I named. I don't, I don't think anybody had come up with the term generative music before I did. And that idea is, as I was just explaining, is, is the idea of taking the composition back a step from I'm the person who designs precisely how this piece of music will sound to I'm the person who designs the machine or the system that will make this music. And the music might, 
will be something that I didn't exactly predict. So that's it. That's my two ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, they, they've they've done you well, to be fair, Brian. They, they've lasted. They're, they're pretty long-standing ideas. If you're going to have two, there, there's quite there's quite a lot of permutations of the two ideas as well. <laughs> you can do quite a lot with two ideas. God, if I'd ever had a third one, think what could have happened. <laughs> <laughs> two, right, okay. A couple of things that I want to ask you. Another thing that I that has got me through countless long studio sessions is the idea that inspiration does not come looking for you. This is an idea that I got from you. Yeah. I remember you talking about, well, actually, I'll just let you talk about it. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, because, in fact, Picasso said something that I've always quoted, and I, I've no, I'm never sure if I've got the quote exactly right, but I think he said, um, inspiration does happen, but it has to catch you working. <laughs> exactly. So that's exactly it. That's it, I think. The, the feeling that, you know, you're not going to be producing works of great wisdom and s s brilliance every second of your life. A lot of the time is just spent sharpening the pencils and tuning the instruments and getting ready to do something. I, I think of it like, you know, you wouldn't trust an athlete who said, well, I never really run except when there's a race, um, which is kind of what a, young, a lot of young artists feel they should be doing. They think they should be like always at their absolute genius best. Um, but a lot of the time you're just keeping the engines running. You're keeping yourself fit in a way. You're paying attention. I've heard you talk about this before and I've heard you kind of talk about that, that there may be an unequal kind of distribution of natural talent across people in the world. But you've spoken about how for every one of those persons, there's kind of also an, e an unequal distribution of readiness. Yes. And I think that's that's the more important part of it, actually. Um, you know, sometimes people say, oh, he was so lucky. But then when you look into it, you find out that he wasn't that much luckier than anybody else, but he made something of the moment. Um, somehow he was able to translate it into something. Um, now, I am a very lucky person in that I grew up in a semi-socialist England, and so I had the benefit of free education and free healthcare and so on, benefits that a lot of people don't have any longer. Um, but within that, you know, there's, well, there's, there's that, um, I think it was Pasteur who said, chance favors the prepared observer. And my version of that is luck is being ready. Luck is yeah. not something that just happens to you. It's something you open yourself up to. It's something you, you it, it takes alertness. I think alertness is the, really the key factor actually both in your life as an artist and your life as a human being alertness is noticing something different something interesting something that you otherwise could overlook i remember reading years ago an interview with um, a very successful chicago police detective and he had a very good record of solving crimes and the person writing the book I was reading said so what's your you know what's the trick and the detective said 
He said, well, my rule is if, if you do a double take, do a triple take. So he's saying, if something catches your attention, don't pass it by. Pay attention to it and think, why am I looking at this? What, what, is, what is interesting me about this? And I think um, I've always kind of been able to do that, to, to stop and say, ah, now that's funny. I like that. Why do I like that? What's, what's special about this that I haven't experienced before? Um, and I think if you're not in the pursuit of imitation, then alertness is what you need. Alertness is spotting the new. Imitation is, is learning the old. They're both important, but, but uh, I'm no good at the <laughs> learning the old part. I, that's why I can't play anything. <laughs> okay, a couple more things, Brian, I just want to talk to you about. I know that um, we were talking about seniors before. On a not so much even a collaborative sense, like, you know, the idea of just being part of a scene can be incredibly informative to one's output. Um, you famously worked with so many people. I mean, what's your, what's your favorite uh, Bowie anecdote? Oh, well, we had, we had such a good time in the studio together. It's, it's hard to come up with one, but there, there, is quite a, there are some quite funny ones. The thing that people never really got about him, because I think he slightly concealed that part of himself, was that he was incredibly witty and very, very, very funny person. Right. And so we spent a lot of the studio time in character. We, we both loved Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. <laughs> he, would, he would be Pete and I would be Dud. And we would spend weeks in character doing work that was not intrinsically humorous, <laughs> but in these strange characters we'd taken on. And we had, um, we used to use the oblique strategy sometimes as, just to get us started on something. And we were working on a piece. I think it was the piece that became Moss Garden on um, the album Low. Um, anyway, we were working on that piece and we had each pulled a, an oblique strategy. And um, the rule was that we didn't let the other person know what our particular oblique strategy said. So on that occasion, mine said, change nothing and continue with immaculate consistency. And his said, destroy the most important thing. But we didn't know that when we were working. So we had this whole morning of working on this piece where he was continually undermining what I was making on purpose. And, and we, would, we were doing this and at some point he looked up and he said, I do believe we're working at cross purposes here, Dud. And I, it doesn't sound so funny on telling, but after three hours of struggle, it was just the most hilarious moment. We, we both fell on the floor laughing. Well, it's that point of madness where you're both pushing so hard yeah. that everything kind of breaks. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, um, it's lovely when that happens, when... Uh, first of all, it's it's lovely when people who are, can both be incredibly engaged in something and really, really passionately engaged in it, but detached enough about it to have a laugh as well. So nearly all the good working relationships I've had had a lot of humor in them, actually. Um, 
In fact, I find that people who are very gifted are often very funny too. Uh, the gift can extends into um, into humor because humor is, if you think about it, human humor is always based on seeing a situation from two different sides at once, and the the joke is always when you're led to believe you're looking from one perspective, and then suddenly you find you're looking from another. Of course, I mean my my dear my my dearest friends are, are always. The, I love the language of the, the the use of language of the word sense of humor. You know, it's not necessarily the the funniest person. The person with the best sense of humor can sense where the humor is. It's this kind of intuitive idea of of where kind of almost like the truth is in the situation. And I do find like the people with the best sense of humor tend to, you know, I mean a good joke is normally kind of the best and most cutting way of telling the truth, no? You know, like the, the, that's, that tends to be the thing. So it surprises me not that, um, that, that, that Bowie was, um, was, was as funny as he was. He was, he was also a bit of a practical jokester. <laughs> that, that produced some funny results. Well, Brian, thank you so much for talking to me. I, I could talk to you for hours, but I know you're, you're a very busy man. Thank you so much, Matt. You know, you said something earlier, which um, I meant to comment on. You said um, you pay attention to the things that make you envious. I know exactly what you mean there. When when I hear something and I think, shit, I wish I'd done that. <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, yeah. so I, I very much have that feeling. And in fact, I'm very much guided by that. So it's almost a slight sort of anger with myself of, damn. I could have done that. I could have done that. I nearly was doing that and I didn't do it. Yeah. I, I have to say, there's one of your songs I felt that way about. Um, that song, Love It If We Made It. Oh, yeah. I thought, oh, my God, I've been trying to, you know, for years I've been thinking, could anyone ever write a good political song? Because it's very, it's a very thin ice to tread on that. Um, you know, it so often tends, ends up being kind of hectoring or naive or something like that. To, to listen, to, to accept to accept the compliment that that's amazing for you to say. The thing is with that song, the 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 the, the balance that, that I've struggled with that whole album, Brian, was the idea of kind of posing questions. Uh, will can the center hold? Like, is this weird? Should we be worried about that? Like that I think that with Love It If We Made It, because there's a kind of inherent lack of opinion. There's an, an inherent lack of kind of judgment. It's more just a, a voyeuristic view of the, the chaos that we're now kind of tapped into from the second we wake up to, the, to when we go to bed. You know what I mean? I think it's, um, there's also, I hope, like a little bit of hope in that song. So the fact that that song resonated with you makes me so happy because, you know, that idea of the pursuit of the truth or like kind of being outward or, you know, leaving in the, the nasty bits, you know, that, that's, you know, th those are things that I've learned from, from artists like yourself. So that, that's, um, well, I never wrote a song so like great that. Say I, that. I wish I had, but I didn't. <laughs> that's, yeah, it really made me, that song really made me think, oh, there is a, there is a political music possible because, you know, for God's sake, if I could, I would write political songs now. Right, because and it's all about documenting the time and like, do you know what I mean? Like I look back at even moments, you know, like that weren't like politically fueled, you know, like times like, you know, people like, you know, I don't know, like 
Dylan and the Cuban Missile Crisis or whatever it may be. Do you know what I mean? Like these times, like they need to be documented. And um, my next, I, I wasn't even thinking about a next record, but we've kind of all been thrown into this new situation. So I think that we we have started on a on a new record, and it and it is a very outward lying thing. So if we do manage to physically be able to see each other again, maybe you'll come down and help me with it. Oh, that would be wonderful. I'd love that. Yeah. Mr. Brian Eno, thank you so much for your time. You are a gentleman and one of my heroes. I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you very much, Matt. Thanks for speaking to me. The, the, the face, the face.